Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, your go-to podcast for meaningful conversations with influential leaders from different sectors every week. This week, our guest is John Quelch. Now, John is the Dean of the University of Miami, Patty and Allen Herbert Business School. Now, John has a wealth of senior leadership experience, having previously served at internationally recognized business schools such as China Europe International, Harvard Business School, and London Business School. Now, together, we'll talk about the evolution of branding and how traditional consumer goods marketing has been routinized. We'll also discuss the changing mindset of different student generations and how the spirit of self-determination, sustainability, and collectivism is more prevalent today than ever. Now, finally, we'll review the transformation that's happening in higher education and how traditional higher ed stands in the way of tech-oriented newcomers. See, all episodes are available at ageofpersonalization.com, where you will find content about leadership, strategy, and innovation. So if you relate to our content, please join the movement and help us spread the word. Now, before we get started, please hit the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis, so you can be in touch with our most recent content about leadership in the age of personalization. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. John, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Glenn. Delighted to be here. So, John, I've got to get to the real question. Why do you find your most authentic self on the tennis court? Ah, uh, well, uh, f- first of all, um, I began playing uh, tennis on public courts uh, when I was around about 10 years old in England. And I've been uh, playing as a uh, pretty ineffective, uh, slow learner. Uh, for the last uh, 50 or 60 years. Um, You know, I think uh, probably the number one point I would say is I find it very difficult to exercise unless I'm competing with someone. So I'm I'm a pretty competitive person, and uh, I like to have uh, a challenge, in this case, on the other side of the net. And one advantage of uh, tennis um, over... um, uh, let's say uh, football um, or rugby, as it uh, would have been described in England, is that you don't get caked in mud um, getting a good workout. Uh, you can wear, you know, very nice uh, clothing. And uh, my mother was a nurse. Uh, she uh, didn't want to see me come home from school uh, completely uh, caked in mud. Uh, and accordingly, you know, tennis from her point of view was also a very uh, a very uh, civilized activity. So uh, exercise, uh, a competitor on the other side of the net. Um, I like doubles as well. So, you know, teamwork uh, vis-a-vis a team on the other side of the net's also cool. And, uh, you know, no, no, no uh, big uh, uh, laundry bill at the end of it. So a, a few quick follow-up questions. Clay, grass, hardcore. 
Okay, so uh, in the UK, um, when I was growing up, on on the the public courts were uh, pretty uneven. So uh, you got you got to be pretty agile on your feet to be able to deal with the unexpected uh, uh, bounce of the court. Uh, but of course, grass was and still is the uh, um, the surface of choice uh, in the UK, uh, Wimbledon being the uh, principal grass court championship in the world. Uh, and so you learn, you learn to play uh, on grass, you learn to play on clay. Uh, when I was growing up, hard courts were not quite so in fashion and certainly not of the caliber and quality uh, that the hard courts are today. Yes. Uh, my particular game is really a... a a relatively slow uh, strategy uh, game, uh, and that is much more easy to win on a clay court uh, than it is on a hard court. So clay would be my preferred surface. Love a day playing in clay. I love it. I love sliding across the court. Now, speaking of strategy, John, let's jump right into it. Now, whether it's higher ed or healthcare or corporate, you know, we're all feeling the tensions between uh, what we refer to as the age of standardization, where the organization defines the individual, and this age of personalization, where the individual is now defining the ways they'd like to see organizations learn, work, lead, and conduct business. We need to come to the reality now that these two forces need each other. Yet they're now operating at the extremes. John, why do you why do you think we reached this point of extreme? How can we have avoided it? And what must organizations do to find the right balance? Because right now, I don't see that they understand the value of both. Um, so I'm not sure that I would uh, entirely uh, agree with you, uh, Glenn. I mean, certainly, uh, if you. If you're someone who wants to be uh, totally in control of your own destiny, um, you can either become a monk uh, or you can become an entrepreneur. Um, even if you're a monk or you're an entrepreneur, you're still um, uh, having to uh, listen uh, to a few rules laid down by the abbot uh, or a few rules laid down by the venture capitalists. Um, but Entrepreneurship as a result of the availability of venture capital is an opportunity for people to express their uh, personal passions in, at, at a level of uh, uh, frequency that uh, we, we have not previously seen in human history. So the, the available, availability of capital as a liberating force is extremely important. Um, yes, there are a certain number of people uh, from a personality point of view who still want to work for uh, very large, major companies, uh, multinational organizations, um, uh, whether they be in the uh, NGO sector or in the for-profit sector. And, you know, that requires a, a set of skills uh, and relationship management skills in particular internally uh, that some people don't have the patience to be able to develop or wish to um, wish to pursue as part of their as part of their uh, daily work. Um, I myself, um, you know, I'm in academia. I'm a lifelong academic, uh, and academia is kind of a halfway house in this regard because obviously there are significant uh, 
university structures and uh, organizational processes that you have to contend with. Uh, but if you want a career as an individualist um, with the benefit of academic freedom, there's a tremendous amount of latitude as long as you're a good teacher and a good researcher to basically chart your own course. So it's um, in academia, a little bit of a mixed uh, bag. It's, it's a halfway house between the two extremes that you're referring to. Um, certainly, there are extremes in our society, uh, polarization uh, in our society. That's, I guess, partly because polar positions are more attention-getting and more entertaining and mm. more newsworthy on social media and uh, as part of the 24-hour news cycle. Mm. It's a very interesting point. I, I agree that it seems like uh, these forms of extremism are uh, have become click, clickbait or a, a form of getting people's attention, uh, almost trying to manipulate people's thinking when what we're really, I think, striving for is to, uh, a sense of more unification. Uh, and in the process, we're finding uh, more division in society. So on that note, let's go back to uh, your role as a brand strategist. I know that this is a deep passion of yours. And, you know, in the past, an employee took great pride in associating themselves with the corporate brand identity. And, and in today, it, it doesn't feel like that's a big sales point for an employee that wants to work for a, a corporation. In fact, you can say the same things about consumers. They don't seem to want the brand to define them anymore. Uh, the consumers want to define the brand. Uh, what's changed in your opinion? Uh, so, you know, in every era, um, every decade, there are hot companies. There are hot companies. There are hot industries. Um, remember, plastics was advocated strongly um, in the in the Graduate, the movie. Yeah. Uh, I, rem I remember when I was coming out of Harvard Business School uh, that uh, Tupperware was the big, um, this really dates me, right? Uh, the Tupperware was the, the big employee of, employer of choice that yeah. year. Um, and today there are other hot companies. Um, you know, when I was teaching at Harvard, uh, let's say, and around about 1985 or thereabouts, um, I used to teach the uh, consumer marketing elective course in the MBA program. Uh, you know, we'd have about 100 people a year taking that course. Uh, maybe eight of them would go to Procter & Gamble. Hmm. And Procter & Gamble was obviously number one marketing company and uh, yeah. would, uh, you know, take the pick of the litter as far as those folks were concerned. Uh, nowadays, Traditional consumer packaged goods marketing has to some extent been routinized, um, and uh, the growth rate in that industry is not nearly as substantial as it is in many other industries, and MBA students uh, tend to be drawn to those industries where they see the quickest pathway to promotion and uh, executive leadership positions. And of course, those are the industries that have the highest growth rates uh, at a particular time. So um, the, uh, the situation is always cyclical. Um, I think branding is no less important today than it was then. Um, 
20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, but the companies and the brands that are commanding uh, the attention of consumers are obviously uh, different today. And um, brands that uh, might have appeared on the interbrand most valuable list uh, yeah. 25 years ago are no longer even in the top 50. So how is this impacting uh, this, the MBA student today? I mean, what are you seeing from uh, your students at the University of Miami Business School? Because their mindsets are changing and uh, they seem to uh, be looking for a path to get what they want faster than what the traditional path has historically called for. Any thoughts? I don't think so. I, th I think uh, that um, the, f the first group of MBA students I taught uh, in 1977 uh, were as um, um, I was going to say arrogant, but that's not a good word to use, um, were as optimistic about their future prospects in the short term um, as any MBA student today is. Hmm. And um, I think that's terrific for the economy. We want to be producing people hmm. who believe that they can do more than they're capable of. Yeah. Uh, who, who we can uh, imagine in the end will exceed what they define as their own potential and um, uh, do for the economy great things that will help all of us as we grow older and get into retirement. I mean, we need uh, wealth creation by young people to make sure that uh, those of us who are retired can be properly supported and looked after, right? Yeah. So so I, I, I don't see that human nature has really changed that much. I think perhaps the, the percentage of students who today believe that within five years of graduating with an MBA, uh, they will be running their own business and should be running their own business. Uh, <laughs> that spirit of uh, self-determination is more prevalent than it was uh, when I first started teaching MBAs. Um, and that goes back to our point about the uh, burgeoning interest in entrepreneurship. Of course, you know, role models such as uh, Gates and uh, Steve Jobs and uh, more recent role models are very important in motivating young people to think that they can achieve great things. So I, I remain extremely optimistic, but I don't see the, the pattern being as uh, different today as I saw it. Uh, when I first started in this game. What is the mix between uh, graduates uh, from the program going to a, a corporation versus becoming an entrepreneur? Right. So again, you have to think in terms of um, immediately upon graduation, but then look at it yeah. three years out, five years out, because yep. a lot of folks uh, you know, might go to uh, a consulting firm uh, for a few years and then uh, uh, set up their own business, get tired of the long hours and the heavy travel, whether or not that comes back. Um, and, you know, people do want to learn uh, from, and you can learn an awful lot by going to Coca-Cola or going to Procter & Gamble or IBM or a traditional company like that. You can still learn a heck of a lot that, you know, at the same time as it probably ends up boring you to death and you feel like you're being locked in 
uh, and not able to realize your full potential. At the same time, you value all of what you've learned and you take that with you when you set up uh, uh, your own company or collaborate with a couple of former MBA students, uh, classmates to set up something. You know what, John, you just reminded me of the story I didn't plan to share, but uh, so I, I've lived that. I mean, uh, was at Sunkiss, got my classical training at Gallo Wine Company, and then I, uh, I decided to go work uh, for an, uh, an artichokes organization, if you can believe this. And there was a call that, you know, my, the president said, hey, Glenn, can you get on the call with this gentleman? He speaks Spanish. I don't understand him. And uh, eight months later, I started my first venture with a, uh, a grower in central Mexico. Um, mm-hmm. n- not only did we take the company's market share, but uh, we also changed the industry. So uh, th- this is a very common thing, uh, especially for those that uh, aren't so fixated or are not big believers in standards and they want to create their own. <laughs> so um, I, I can see this play out quite, quite nicely. And it's interesting as I continue to work with, you know, emerging leaders from uh, large corporations, we're seeing the same trend. I mean, you mentioned NGOs, you, you know, these generations are looking uh, to make an impact and to make a difference. And so they, they, they come to the world of, of, of business and work with a, very different mindset than, than certainly I did. Uh, yeah, let me let me uh, tell sure. you one thing. One thing that we've done down here that's been highly effective. So, um, as you know, uh, Miami is uh, probably ground zero for ocean rise in the United States. So we have uh, a lot of people who are very interested in and concerned about climate change and uh, mm. the impact on the uh, South Florida economy and on real estate prices and so forth. Um, so what we decided to do, given the uh, Generation Z interest in uh, sustainability, was we, we put together a couple of years ago a new degree program, uh, which is an MS, a one-year MS in sustainable business. And uh, one of the reasons why we did that, in addition to what I've just said, is that uh, we happen to have a School of Marine and Atmospheric Science within the University of Miami, mm. uh, which is a very well-esteemed school. And we're able to offer a degree program, therefore, in sustainable business that combines the science with the business. And this is actually the only STEM certified MS in sustainable business in the United States. Now, why, why is that important? Um, it's, it's not that this is going to be the biggest degree program that uh, the Miami Herbert Business School offers. But what we're finding is that A lot of people who want to do an MBA or want to do an MS in finance or an MS in business analytics, they want to do it at a school that values sustainability. Mm -hmm. And um, so what's more tangible evidence of uh, walking the talk than to have a program, a degree program in that topic? And the, the courses that we put together and designed for this degree program are open and available as electives to all of our MBA students and our other master's degree students. In addition to which, we um, uh, secured uh, LWD uh, gold uh, certification for operations and maintenance of our buildings. Our buildings are, in most cases, uh, 20 years old plus, but um, LWD has a certification that is not for new buildings, but for existing buildings in terms of operations and maintenance. 
So again, to walk the talk, uh, we were able to get that LWED certification. We're actually up for renewal this year and shooting for platinum, right. uh, as well as we hope to get our well. You know, the, the other certification is the WEWL well certification for uh, our building uh, operations as well this year. Yeah, this, you know, this is what we're learning in higher ed is that it's so important to get out in front of what the individual is looking for. And this sure. issue of sustainability is a huge one. So thanks for sharing that with, with us, John. Now, Scott, I'm about ready to shift gears here. What are you picking up? Um, maybe just a short comment about uh, maybe just tying together this individual, the comment about the individual and, and maybe something earlier to what John said about um, essentially this, uh, we've got, right what was it the monk and the entrepreneur right and and one of the things that that you're you're uh working towards right is to try to help inspire people to to take more of that entrepreneurial spirit in in light of if this is individual agency right as opposed to sort of that collective agency that where we're all a team and we get together and so um i wish i wanted to sort of check back on one one point that you raised and then we can maybe move on glenn to to, to continue but um you had mentioned that when you're thinking about sort of the, the time frame of how things have changed in terms of the, of the individual human nature you mentioned. I'm spe specifically talking at the individual level and this proclivity towards uh, joining the collective. I'm going to join the corporation or I'm going to go and I'm going to be a CEO within, well, hopefully less than five years. Um, could you redress that? Because I thought I heard that you said that you really haven't seen such a major shift in the amount of people that are, are, are moving towards the entrepreneurial sort of spirit, or is it that you're just saying they're moving there faster? Could you check in a little bit? Because I think there is something really big going on amongst, the, amongst human nature in terms of the way that we balance the individual and our relation to society, whether that's a corporation or something bigger. And I just would really love some more insight from you. No, I think... Uh... I think you're right that a higher percentage of people are uh, now wishing to express their individuality uh, earlier. And, uh, um, you know, that feeds on itself. Uh, I see my friend next door doing it. I want to do it. Um, so uh, there's a steamroller uh, effect. And um, uh, the confidence that I have that I'm able to do it is going to be magnified if I see people I know who've already done it. But one, one thing I would point out, and that is that, you know, being an entrepreneur does not mean that you can uh, be ignorant of the collective and the frameworks that determine uh, team success, because uh, no entrepreneur um, that I know of has been super successful uh, as a result of just being um, an individual. Uh, in order to scale a business, you have to be able to uh, select good people. You have to be able to organize. You have to be able to delegate. Um, there's, a, there's a famous uh, question that is often asked uh, of entrepreneurs. Do you want to be king or do you want to be rich? And if you want to be rich, you can't be the king. You have to be um, the first among equals and uh, assemble a team. So understanding the collective is as important to being a super successful entrepreneur as it is to being, um, you know, embedded as an executive in a established corporation. That is super helpful. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the idea that, that we're not saying there's a massive shift. It just, it, it does appear 
that with 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 seeing more of the entrepreneurial spirit and, and individuality rising up, that that in fact that that uh, that the collectivity is still first and foremost, and uh, and to be the individual, to be that monk, you still need right. You you still need your boss. You still need your lane. And and I appreciate you helping me to understand that. Yeah, so much has changed, but maybe that's more surface than I thought. Very I'll good. come back to exponential technology and communications growth, but we'll we'll finish that at the end. <laughs> so, 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 John, let, let's go back to the to the Herbert uh, Business School. What transformations do you anticipate as your biggest opportunities? Uh, so, certainly, the um, COVID situation has, as we all know, accelerated the uh, application of online learning. Um, you know, we did have uh, prior to COVID uh, online degree programs that. Uh, uh, mirrored our MBA, our MS in finance and MS in accounting, as a matter of fact, but those were the three that we already had. Um, so we had a number of faculty members who were already experienced in online delivery, and that was very helpful in terms of getting us through the, uh, getting us through the crisis of the last uh, year and a quarter. I would say uh, with respect to graduate level education in particular, uh, mm. that you're going to see uh, more uh, blended programs. By blended, I mean a portion that's face-to-face, -face, a portion that's online, um, and fewer 100% residential programs. Mm -hmm. um, at the undergraduate level, uh, we believe at the University of Miami, and anyone who's visited uh, our campus knows this, that we, we have a phenomenally beautiful campus that is a destination campus. And we, we believe that there is long-term a sustained demand for a four-year residential undergraduate experience. Now, if you're, if you're in the middle of nowhere, if you're running a university in the middle of nowhere, as opposed to um, adjacent, as Coral Gables is adjacent to Miami, uh, one of the you know, fastest growing and uh, most exciting global cities, you know, you're not going to have the ability to be a magnet for a residential degree program mm -hmm. in the same way as we are. And yeah, you're yeah. going to therefore need to go further into uh, online earlier um, at the undergraduate level than we will have to do. So, so what are the transformations you fear the most for their potential to disrupt, John? Um, certainly. Um, if you take, uh, let, let's just take a couple of names, okay? Say Google or Amazon, you know, started a global university hmm. and um, basically put together um, a global um, undergraduate business program or a global MBA program. Um, the question would be whether or not, well, there are two things that you would need. One would be uh, you need um, brilliant instructional design um, and engaging course content and course presentation and course delivery. On top of that, though, you need outstanding uh, academics because, you know, a lot of the draw of particular academic brands is the individual faculty brands that underpin what's being delivered. 
and really actually in many ways differentiate what's delivered at one place versus another. So the interesting question would be, could Google and Amazon hire people away from Harvard Business School hmm. or from Stanford? Would they be able to put out a value proposition that would get those top academics to move uh, to those new brands? The one yes. thing, the two things that hold that back from happening, uh, a number one for for most academics, being a part of a um, a group of colleagues uh, off of which they can feed intellectually is very important. Hmm. So, you know, you might Google might hire me, let's say, to become you know one of its uh, lead professors, but would I have you know ten or fifteen other people at Google? Um, in the uh, in the same subject area or adjacent subject areas that I could feed off for intellectual purposes, and uh, would I be able to have the same level of freedom that I have at my university? Hmm. Uh, would I have the time to research and publish articles uh, as I do now? So, you know, it's not so easy for um, not so easy for Google or Amazon to perhaps do this as. It may seem at first blush. It's not just a matter of money. Uh, if it was just a matter of money, half the people in academia wouldn't be in academia. They would be on Wall Street or they would be somewhere else. So it's, um, e so it's evident, John, that you're aware of the infrastructure that those, both of those companies are trying to build around education. Sure, uh, what, what, what are your views on Google's certification programs? I heard they're pretty good. I think uh, I think they're delivering, uh, designing and delivering quality product. But there's one other thing that um, um, higher education has that sort of stands in the way of these newcomers. Uh, it's a barrier to the newcomers, hmm. and that is the network effect associated with the alumni base that you become a member of if you happen to be at a particular university. Absolutely. Um, so University of Miami is not a large university. It's a relatively smallish private university. But um, we have, I think, something like 180,000 alumni. And probably around about half of them are within 100 or 150 miles of Miami itself living. Hmm. Uh, and accordingly, you know, people, people who want to live in Miami, if, the, if you're living in Columbus or Cleveland or Chicago and you're sick of the weather, you want to live in Miami longer term, you'd come to Miami and the University of Miami to get access to the 180,000 alumni, half of whom are within 150 miles of this campus. And that is a huge benefit. And that is something that if you start from scratch as, uh, you know, Amazon University, you know, it's not it's not easy to uh, replicate that. Um, you know, you could set up an alumni club of people who are Amazon Prime subscribers, but you know, I don't think that quite has the same level of exclusivity as the University of Miami alumni base. Sure. So that's a challenge as well for them. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to shift gears here as we get closer to wrapping things up, uh, John. Now, in 2018, you co-authored the book, Building a Culture of Health. 
And, you know, this topic, as I'm sure you know, is quite timely as as workplaces are becoming more chaotic and hybrid. You know, large employers must, you know, place the whole person experience at the center of their workforce transformation efforts. So what are your views now that large organizations, especially given the the effects of of the pandemic, um, what would you advise them as they're starting to think of putting together these more comprehensive health and well-being programs? Uh, so when, when we when we're talking about the uh, the book in question, the the basic premise of the book was that every every company and every organization is in the healthcare business. Exactly. In, in other words, if you're making widgets or if you're you know making uh, pots. You know, you are a healthcare company, and let, let me tell you the four reasons why you're a healthcare company. First of all, the widgets and the pots that you make, how safe, how healthful, how nutritious are those products that you're actually making? Mm. Are they safe? Are they, uh, are they sustainable? Are they healthy? So point number two is, um, what's the employee health? looking like? Uh, what are your working conditions looking like? What are your employee benefits looking like? Do you have those well-being programs that you're alluding to? Uh, then thirdly, you have the environmental health issue. Uh, when you're making the pots or widgets, are you uh, water neutral? Are you um, emitting excess carbon, uh, et cetera? And then finally, um, there's the issue which I think most companies have the most difficulty embracing, and that's the issue of community health. Hmm. Um, community health is the fourth pillar of these four uh, elements to building a culture of health. And mo most CEOs would take the position pre-COVID that, hey, community health, that's something that I pay taxes for and the government delivers. That's not my responsibility. I'll look after my own employees to an extent, but I'm not going to be bothered about community health. That's, that's beyond the scope of my shareholders' interests. But what we've been able to say to these chief executives is two things. First of all, the employees that you employ um, spend two thirds of their time in the communities where. They go home to sleep at night, drive in from the following day. And if those communities are not healthy, the employees that you hire are not going to be healthy. Um, or if they're healthy, they're going to have distractions at home because they're going to have relatives or loved ones or friends who are not healthy that have to be taken care of. And then the second thing, second thing that we emphasize is that if you have a healthy community, you have an economically healthy community. Right. And if you have an economically healthy community and you're, let's say, a supermarket, you're going to sell more product out of your supermarket. If you're a retail bank in a community, you're going to get more deposits in your bank if your community is healthy economically. And to be healthy economically, you have to be healthy physically and mentally. So when we make these points to corporations, um, CEOs get it. And so aided by COVID, we've seen actually an elevation 
and the uh, amount of commitment on the part of major corporations to assisting and funding, supporting community health initiatives. So, so first of all, I agree with everything that you've said, but how prepared do you think that corporations are uh, recognizing that the employee priorities have totally changed? I mean, and to drive business recovery, if we're not creating a culture of health uh, in our in companies, there will be no recovery. I, I, I think the, ma the major companies that I deal with are very uh, astute and understand this, as is often the case. Um, it's the largest, most significant uh, Fortune 500 companies that have um, a brand strength that enables them to command uh, profit margins, which give them a certain amount of discretionary money to invest in these areas. Those are the ones that are in the driver's seat. The, the challenge is among you know, small and medium-sized businesses, um, and especially if they've been gutted by the virus and the effects yeah. of the virus, you know, for them to um, be distracted in their mind by, you know, community health issues, um, you know, diverting some of their uh, profit margin, if there is any, towards funding uh, local initiatives. You know, that's a very difficult thing to ask a lot of businesses that have been financially challenged on Main Street uh, by the virus to actually do. And one, one, of the, one of the biggest challenges in this community health space is the reality that a large portion of the workforce every day, a larger portion of it, is migrating to uh, companies uh, which operate virtually and which actually aren't anchored physically in a main street uh, or um, a town. Uh, they are operating out of the valley with workforces that are distributed all over the world, um, and they don't have uh, a headquarters that has uh, thousands of people that are living, you know, for example, like, Dow Chemical is in Midland, Michigan, okay? The entire economy of Midland and for miles around depends on Dow Chemical. You know, when you're talking about um, Facebook um, and um, Airbnb and Uber, and companies like this, you know, it just isn't the same. The, the, the footprint of the headquarters just is not the same. Yep. Um, and uh, as a result, connecting um, corporate philanthropy or corporate investment, I should say, to individual physical communities, that's actually become, it is more challenging even as we are making progress in many CEOs understanding the importance of investing in communities. Yeah. No, the reason I bring it up is that, as, as you well know, being in South Florida, that uh, as the populations become much more diverse, uh, this issue of building a culture of health is becoming more critical because it's those growing diverse populations that are most susceptible to chronic disease states, which impacts their performance at work, impacts their communities, their own communities, and impacts 
the ability to, for organizations to really flourish if uh, if these communities are dealing more uh, have more distractions because of these inherent uh, healthcare issues that we have, and that's one of the reasons I want to bring it up and get your perspective on that. Good, Scott. Anything else? Um, I just wanted to connect uh, two two observations I had from. Um, I love uh, John. You were talking about the hybrid work and sort of the challenges and opportunities coming forth now as we we sort of grow more accustomed to this hybrid work model. And, 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 and as everyone adjusts to it, but also you speak about the entrepreneur as a rooted entrepreneur, that, that successful entrepreneurs, whether it's now or maybe even the decade or so ago, um, in order to be a successful solo pilot entrepreneur, you have to be rooted in your humanity and in your community. Um, what I'm seeing is the meta level, at the meta level here, is you're, you're coming back to connectivity. And I promise this is not going to be as long as it's going to sound, but if we go back to the emergence of humankind seven million years ago, six billion years ago, when the first um, apes kind of started to semi-walk upright, uh, freeing up our hands. You know, we were very connected then because we had to be connected in small groups as hunter-gatherers. And, and if we think about our trajectory to 2021, I think what you're saying, we need to listen more. And I'm going to need to read more of your work and maybe talk to you again because this connectivity issue is, is I think, at the, at the heart of a lot of what we're grappling with across disciplines, across silos. And, and what I'm saying here is that we've spent 7 million years as highly connected hunter-gatherer people whose economy, whose mode of production was singular and small, where we all knew each other. And that's pretty easy to take care of and to manage compared to what we do now. Now, think about this. 7 million years, and all of a sudden it takes about three or four to get our first stone tools. And then it takes another three-ish to get us to agriculture, right? And agriculture, just 12,000 years ago, out of the 7 million-year trajectory, changed everything. We have agriculture. Next thing you know, cities emerge, right? Money, this idea of money and credit emerges. All of these things emerge that today to us seems so natural. So what I would like to just draw from your observations today and maybe have and challenge all of us to think about is this idea that connectivity, our humanity and our connectivity with humanity, regardless of whether we're going to be a monk or an entrepreneur, um, depends on really maybe putting this a little bit further up on the shelf in terms of closer to eye level, because I think that's what we're grappling with. When you have an entrepreneur that's trying to do what they want to do as an individual, they reckon, they reckon with their limits because they're hunter-gatherers. They've only had 12,000 years to get used to this, let's speak more competitive with each other. And so with that, I have one mini lesson, and I want to bring our lawyers into this conversation, not for, uh, for, for, for sort of uh, legal purposes, but because I think the NAACP and the court cases, the road to Brown, which desegregated schools in the United States, at least de, de, de jure, um, they have something to teach us here. Um, if we look at how the lawyers took cases from graduate schools all the way up to, or I should say, yeah, I'm going to say all the way up, all the way up to kindergarten, right? Bit by bit, one case after another. What they did in so many different ways and in so many different cases and in so many different states and in so many co different contexts, they said a school and an education is not just access to the class. That, you know, when we go to Texas, you know, they, they, they got in trouble and they had to overturn their segregated uh, system specifically because lack of alumni network, 
lack of library research, lack of everything that you're talking about that Miami as a residential and physical place of scholars and, 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 and community, that that's what makes it work. So I think I just need to thank you for bringing me two ideas today that I can't wait to go back on. One, I'm gonna to go to your readings to think a little bit more about this connectivity thing that I just see bouncing all around the upside of your head there. And then the other side is going back to some, to the, to the legal cases that were, were uh, successful in bringing us desegregation in American schools, because I think deep within their structural arguments, we're gonna find why Google University isn't gonna work, but Google can make a lot of cool things to make universities work. With that, Absolutely. I'm gonna turn it back to you, Glenn. Or do you? No, turn it back to John. John, no, I, I totally agree with the last point. And, uh, um, you know, universities have to do a lot more to work uh, closely in partnership with uh, corporations. Actually, uh, you know, on the science uh, discovery side, uh, universities in the United States uh, do a better job of that than almost any other higher education system in the world. Maybe not Israel, uh, but... Um, uh, we, we have to be uh, more uh, open, ecumenical, and understand that uh, uh, partnerships with uh, uh, folks outside of uh, academia, that's going to be essential to competitive success and survival, indeed, going forward. Well, I'll leave it that, there. Yeah. And, and excuse me, John, this is why, you know, we've been talking about in leadership in the age of personalization, that this convergence is coming, that you cannot transform on your own, whether you're higher ed, corporate, or healthcare. All these three sectors are solving for the same things, just packaged differently. They're all solving for the individual. And, yes. you, know, and you know that as a brand strategist, and again, I say this respectfully, I'd love to get your, your, your counter view on this as we close, but you know, we've always said that we're student-centered, that we're consumer-centered, that we're patient-centered, that we're employee-centered. And that's not true. We've had many limits that have not allowed us to bring these key stakeholders into the fold so that they can help us co-design the future together. And we learned that during the pandemic. So didn't know if you had any final thoughts. I think, uh, I think genetics is going to be the uh, real uh, name of the game in uh, the rest of this century. And um I'm not sure where that's going to take us, but uh, the level and speed of discovery um, in terms of uh, how genetics can be applied to make things better for everybody, um, that's, that's, I think, a major opportunity. And, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing what uh, the science combined with the business is able to achieve, and hopefully uh, the, regular, the regulators won't be too far behind the curve Yep. Um, and uh, we'll be able to uh, collectively ensure that all of uh, what's done is, is for the good rather than uh, for evil. That's a great point. Go ahead, Scott. Quickly, we're, we're out of time. Thing. It's true, but one easy quick thing about genetics. I want to point out that with the people that were early on in the genetics game and figuring out that we were, were these things that we could call maybe genes or what we were calling them before, factors and other things before, um, they, they worked that science out by focusing on the individual. Mm -hmm. on the screen yeah. on the individuals. So they're looking at the, ge yeah. the genome of the individual. And we yeah. didn't accomplish anything when that was our framework. As soon as science evolved and kept testing and correcting and moved from, that, from the individual genome to population genetics, everything much, changed. Much so let's remember, Glenn, 
When you solve for the individual, you're going to solve for the individual. But as soon as you do, your heart is going to be broken because you've just lost the most important thing an individual can ever have. And it's, that is its connection and its belonging to humanity. Great way to end. John, any final points? That's fine. I uh, can't beat that. Uh, Scott, <laughs> you did a good job. Thanks. Very good. Well, John, listen, we, we certainly appreciate your time. We enjoyed uh, the conversation with you and, and uh, time got the best of us. But look, as we always close, in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't, do what others won't, and keep pushing when prudence says quit. John, great to have you. Thank you again for, uh, for your time. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.